0: Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Today, I'm speaking to Steve, developer Steve Kuchin. And yes, that is his real name. This is a man whose devotion to developer relations means that he's refactored his own name and it only gets better from there. In this episode, we talk about the two generations of developer advocates and how our experiences as part of the first generation are different from those of this new generation that can go straight into developer relations as a career. We also talk about the difference between working for companies where developers are the customer base versus companies where developers simply work for the customers. This was a really fun chat. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Fireside of the Box Geek podcast. Today, we have Developer Steve. Hello, Developer Steve, how are you?
1: Hello, I am well, thank you. And hello to everyone listening.
0: Fabulous. So Developer Steve is actually your real name on your passport, isn't that right?
1: It is, it is. It is actually my legal middle name.
0: <laughs> this, folks, is dedication to the art of developer advocacy. Um, respect, Steve, respect.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um you know what? It was a it was a I've been a I've been an advocate or an evangelist. Well, same same really, but yeah, I've been a developer advocate for so many years now. Actually coming up to 10 years, which does not make me feel old one bit. But um just through my travels over the years, being able to work with so many amazing communities, um, well, people started calling me developer Steve. So when I got married in 2018, uh we combined, me and my wife combined our surnames. So Cooper plus Houchin became Kuchin, which is my married name. So when I legally changed that, I thought, you know what? I'm going to make it my middle name. So my actual legal middle name is, of oh, my legal name is Stephen developer Steve Kuchin.
0: <laughs> wow. So let me get this straight. You refactored your name.
1: <gasps> I did. I've never thought of it like that. But yes, yes, I did.
0: <laughs> well, you know, naming is one of the most important things in computer science, right?
1: This is, this is true. Uh, you know what, and that still plagues me today. It's like, what am I gonna call this function variable, this thing, what am I gonna call it? Because someone's gonna see it at some point in time.
0: <laughs> it's an excuse to take a 15 minute coffee break to uh, think about the design of your code. Naming, very important. Exactly, very important. yeah. <laughs> okay, so the reason we are talking is because uh, you're totally awesome developer advocate, and you saved my life with a specific technical problem that I had with a client, uh, which is really, really awesome. So what happened was um, you work for Lumigo, and there was a Lumigo error message being generated by a third-party library, and my client was feeling a little nervous about all the error messages. Um, it seemed to be non-fatal, um, and I got in touch with you because I was following you on Twitter because of your advocacy work. Um, and yeah, you guys in Limigo went off, you figured out what was wrong in somebody else's library, which is awesome. You, I think, had some interactions with the third party to eventually, and it's eventually fixed. Um, but the experience for me as a developer using your system uh, was totally awesome. Um, so it, is this by design? Did it just happen? Is this? Lumigo's policy or is it just stuff that you've ways that you've learned to work with people over the years? Why, why was it such a good experience for me? Um,
1: first of all, that was a myth that, uh... That was very amazing to hear, very amazing to hear. That was great to hear. <laughs> um, so to answer you, I guess to answer all those questions in one go, yes, <laughs> um, it is, um, it is always, it's always been part of the way that I engage uh, in DevRel. Like um, it, it's how I would always like to be engaged as a developer coming from a developer background. So it's always some been something that's been important to me. Like. If I don't know the answer or I can't, um, you know, pull something apart using my developer powers and figure out why, where, and when and how, then, um, yeah, I'll just figure out like a way to be able to um, find those answers that I need. Um, And for me, like being able to help a dev in need like yourself. Um, has always been important because that's, that's the core of the job. Like, that's why we do this job. It's always, um, you know, there's always a community to engage with, to share what you know, to encourage and help, you know, future, future developers and current developers, well, all developers, really. Um, so yeah, I guess to circle back, the answer to all of the above is yes. Um, and so, uh, being at the core of Lamigo's developer advocacy program, this is totally important to us because is well, it's important to me. <laughs> um, plus, you know what? I wanted to find out the answer as well. Incidentally, um, and we're not going to name the third party, but if I could shout out to them, I'd say uh, thank you for fixing that particular thing because I did raise it as an issue on your open source uh, library. Um, but also um, one thing that I am certainly made sure of was I had a second set of, so I actually pulled everything apart to find that particular that particular issue. But then I got other people inside the company, some of our engineers, to validate what I'd found was correct. Because as from an engagement point of view, I didn't want to go back and say, um, no, it's not us, it's it's them. <laughs> because, well, I didn't want to be that dev. <laughs> so I made sure first and then um, handled it as best I could.
0: This is a good example of one aspect of developer advocacy that um, doesn't get discussed too much. But it's not just building example code or speaking at conferences or doing community stuff. In this example, you actually rolled up your sleeves, got deep into the code to resolve an issue with multiple parties. Um, that's, you know, I'm that, that just sort of landed on your plate. It's not like planned development. Um, does Lumigo create the space? It, it, it sounds like a really healthy environment. Do you have the space and time to dive into those things?
1: Um, I'm gonna say no, but I made space in time. Okay. <laughs> um I I guess that's one of the things. Uh I mean Lamigo does definitely encourage it. Um in saying that, like, you know, we're all um like like any thriving startup, we're all, you know, busy, busy, busy. Um, and lot lots on, but for that type of thing, it's the type of thing that I'll always, you know, make space where I can. Um, particularly um if it's something that I can uh, look at directly and then engage with engineering, engage with product as needed just to say, hey, here's what I found, here's how I did it, et cetera, et cetera. Like if I can help them also do the groundwork. And then um, also for me, my learning as a dev and in de- dev advocacy, if it's a larger issue, then I can fundamentally understand it and help others with it once I understand it. If that, yeah, that's, um, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the... Uh, developer relations uh, structure in Lumigo. I mean, Lumigo, you know, developers are a very core constituency for you guys. Um, how are, How is developer relations run? Mm-hmm. You know, What's the size of the team? It, where does it fit into the leadership structure? Uh, how do um, you guys? Know,
1: Uh, Great question. Um, yeah, we've got, um, got a few people working on the DevRel team. Um, I'm, um, uh, lucky enough to be part of the, the, the the fundamental core, as it were. Um, and you'll like everything that it's a wide gambit of activities from a DevRel point of view. Everything from, um, you know, helping create t-shirts, stickers, geeky fun things. I mean, that's one of my favorites is always, you know, coming up with fun and exciting new stickers and um oh actually there's a new kubernetes one about to come out for a couple of kubernetes conferences we're doing soon uh i don't want to give spoilers away but the D D is strong with this one <laughs> anyway yeah. um and for those that are attending uh sorry
0: you go a good tie-in i said <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I wanted to mention it because, um, yeah, I did. Uh, I did the artwork for it the other day, <laughs> and came up with some wording for it because it was, you know, it was one of those things that just kind of hit me, and I was like, oh, I really want to see a T-shirt with this on it. So, anyway, we're getting a T-shirt with that on. <laughs> oh, in addition to your, your, your other nice.
0: plans, you're you're an artist as well, right? You make me sick.
1: I dabble. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to change my name to D- designer Steve, but um, yeah, I dabble. <laughs> Uh, we'll also do video editing stuff as well but that's a whole other thing
0: okay okay so that's <laughs> right an interesting, that's an interesting point because um developer advocates often have to do a whole bunch of content creation that includes video editing yeah. uh, slides and all that sort of stuff do you think that's an important side skill to develop basic understanding of design
1: you know um, something I kind of, so I have been uh, an advocate slash evangelist for, you know, n- nine on 10 years now. And I think one of the things I've always enjoyed is, um, particular to this role is just the wide gambit of hats that we wear as advocates, which I think you, you touched on at the start there. Um, definitely on the content creation side, there's, you know, um, videos, um, you know, writing blog posts, um, building demo apps. Um, and for me, all those three things are combined. It's like you build a demo app, you take it out to conference talks. Like you, you have some fun with it. You make some videos about it. You write up, do a couple of write-ups on it, and then you can use it for workshops and whatever else, like being able to reuse content in a multiple ways, uh, always super cool. But then, If you can do your own video editing and also you know do a lot of the bits in between it kind of uh, speeds up the process a little bit and you kind of have fun on the creative side of things being able to build that stuff out but the thing for me is always you know just always be learning like always be refining those skills looking for new ways to adapt like um, there's a whole suite of um some people might be scared from it at the moment, but um, there's a whole suite of AI tools that are, yes. you know, um, almost, almost by the hour they're coming out these, these days. I know Adobe Firefly came out with um, uh, inline edits uh, literally yesterday, which was, has been crazy fun to play around with. Um, but just bringing out that creative side to, you know, make those fun and engaging and geeky experiences has always been um, something I've always been passionate about. Got to keep it fun.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It feels like things like ChatGPT and AI tools are more useful to developer advocates than most developers. Um, So what I found in in some of the stuff that we do is when you're building examples in languages that you might not be too familiar with, it's super handy, or you have to generate swagger docs or something. Um, But day-to-day coding on large code bases, um, generally not that helpful because you have to know the whole code base and you're just doing maintenance work. Um, but I think, would it be fair to say that the AI stuff uh, has raised the bar on developer advocacy in terms of what people should be outputting?
1: Um, that's a really interesting, that's a really good question. Um, I think, well, I, for me, it's a um, it's another tool in the suite of tools. Like when I'm doing video editing, uh, for example, like I used uh, like After Effects and Camtasia and what other, what ev- ev- other video tools that... I have my disposal. And for me, that's just another tool than that. that suite. It's like, I can, um, you know, generate an image or a placeholder image or, you know, some type of fun image that I'll, I'll then maybe have to take into Photoshop to edit or do some stuff too. And no doubt there's a whole suite of video tools coming that'll do similar things. And I think those tools get close, but they don't often hit the mark. And I, I think the one thing in particular that I've noticed, Oh, um, more recently in, in, indeed is that um, we're setting, we're using these tools to set the context more, like we still set the story. This is just another method to add to that story. It's like, here's some nice images, et cetera. Um, here's some you know, nice uh, graphics to go alongside that. So um, yeah, I guess in a way it's kind of lifted the bar a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've started playing with it myself and it's um, both wonderful and utterly frustrating um at the same time so the the other reason i am really uh was really keen to get you on is um there's one topic that i'm super interested in discussing which is your experiences your previous experiences because you have worked for different types of companies that have different uh customer bases specifically Lumigo, for instance right now has a mostly technical customer base or at least you're interacting with the technical people in the customer, whereas you previously worked for Zero, let's say the the accounting SaaS. Yeah. Um, and although there are you know developers interacting with Zero's APIs, Zero's customers are not technical, um, and I'm sure that has an effect on the culture of the company and the way developer advocacy is done. Um, so I'm really interested to hear your perspectives, your your kind of personal experiences of working for companies that have those two different focuses and, and maybe some of the other ones you work for as well. What do you think are the big differences? Uh,
1: yeah, this is, this is I, actually, you know, I've found this the most interesting. Um, and I guess probably one thing I meant to mention in one of the early questions was um, for me, this isn't a career. Like I, this stopped being a career for me pretty much as soon as I started doing it and started to work out that develop, developer advocacy is one of those, um, Many hat, multi hat, no, multi-hatted roles where you're everything to everyone for every reason inside an organization. And as such, um, one thing I've always found is no one ever knows where to, inside an org, no one ever knows where to put DevRel because oh, yeah. you're not quite marketing. <laughs> you're definitely not sales because you can't, like, we're not that. There's no way we're that. I mean, you might support them, might do a couple of joint activities, but you're not sales. Um, you're not really product uh, and you're not really engineering side, but you kind of fit into all of those. So no one's really ever worked out where we go. I think usually in most orgs, it kind of ends up, uh, I mean, it it varies depending on um, what the the flavor of the year is, but you kind of end up in the marketing realm because the budgets are maybe a little bit better there. And it's a bit easier to tie your activities to that stuff, but you still kind of all the other things too. So, which is the way I've always done it. I mean, when I first started doing it, uh, with um, I was developer advocate with PayPal and Braintree for two years, um, which is my first uh, DevRel gig. And the way that they um, uh, sort of trained me to do it was, you're a funded startup inside the company. So, if you don't know it and like there's no one to um, sort of uh, bring in to help with the project, then you learn it and you're, you're it. <laughs> Which is yep. kind of where I guess I started to do the video editing and, um, yeah, you know, all the, all the many other things. Um, the, the difference in the, um, the company's approach, each company's approach that I've been through is interesting because as you are aligned to those different areas, um, like through marketing or, um, into engineering or whatever, obviously the focus of your activities needs to change. And this is where the multi-hatted comes into play, the multi-hatted approach because you're still going to do, the full suite of things. It's just to um, align with that particular org and um, grow as a team and get the get the you know the the funding and stuff you need, the resources you need. You kind of have to align to those activities, but at the same time walk that line between engaging with you know doing the the, the regular DevRel activities, engaging with community and doing the conference stuff and whatever else. So it's always a lot of juggling. <laughs> I think. The outcome of that, but um, it is interesting to see the different approaches, um, particularly strategically, of who who's important to that particular organization. So, for zero, for example, um, they've got an amazing ecosystem. Um, like you said, the you know the APIs, they've got the API um, platform that people can build their applications into. The end users, though, are not technical. And because of the work and the robustness of their API, they don't need to. And that's where the advocacy team will come would have, well, when I was there anyway, (laughs) it was a few years ago now, but that's where I came in because I could help work with those developers to make sure that they've got that really nice experience so that the end, their non-technical end users don't have to worry too much about the technical side of things because we've been there to help, you know, guide that, that whole experience.
0: And the role of external developers using the api's and the sdks in the different companies is it seen differently mm-hmm. uh, but um, mm-hmm. by that i mean uh is often developers interacting with the system is the first step in making a sale because those developers then influence the the budgetary decision makers to use or not use yeah. the system um is that different is even for something like Xero, surely that must be part of it, right? Because if somebody asked me about accounting systems and then I knew there was going to be an integration, I care very much whether the API and the support structures are good or not. That will influence yeah. me to make a decision about which accounting SaaS I want to use. Um, is there an appreciation of that? Is it different?
1: Um, there is, and yes, it is different. Um, so Zero, for example, um, an uh, amazing um, product team and engineering team that had very good vision and very good structure about how the APIs needed to work and um, the the different offerings, the different pro- product suites, etc. When you start to get into bigger organizations, um, so when I was at a um, at Telstra, for example, the telecommunications company, there was an API team that had multiple product teams feeding APIs into it. So you had a multiple of product suite uh, API products. Inside the API that wasn't, um, wasn't uh, directly maintained or controlled by the API team. They were just the, um, public endpoint, if you will, for the different product suites. Um, which, as you can imagine, in large orgs can get rather, um, tricky to navigate, particularly, um, when, so what I, what I did while I was there, one of the things, uh, I, I always do as a developer, as a hands on developer advocate, is being able to pick up any API products, for example, and get hands-on with them before they get, go out the door. Because like I have to be uh, not only familiar with those particular products or well, that particular product group or your uh, end and product, but I am the first usability test. And if it passes me, then it's good to go. Um, and so being able to take an API spec for an entire product suite and push out all the the SDKs, uh, for example, was something I just did because it helped make developers' lives easier. Um, and at the same time, it also showed the business that, um, the, the wider business that this, um, this, is a, this way to engage with developers helps them be able to build out better experiences with the products. Um, it's important to note here that, um, actually, I want to do a shout out to an amazing open source community that I used to do it, uh, that particular uh, task, which is, open api generator um anyone looking to get involved in open source i highly recommend them it basically lets you take an open api spec or swagger 2 spec uh, and then generate multiple language sdks from literally a command line or you can set it up inside containers etc um, and it very quickly just to prove that probe that particular element of the program would like am- worked amazingly well I started with um, eight SDKs on one API product. And when I left, actually it's still on the GitHub too. There was like 40, over 40 of them that I was pushing out SDKs for, I think it was like five or six API products from memory. And these um, were all um, generated yeah. code
0: from, a, from a spec.
1: Yeah, yeah, multiple specs. And so what I do is when, um, when new specs came in or new versions of the specs came in, I would have to generate all the SDKs and then test everything to make sure they worked. Um, which I mean, when there was like a handful of them, it was really easy when it ended up with 40, it was a lot of work. I actually broke them one time by not testing it properly. I got to say, and that was interesting because we had all these people emailing in saying it's broken. Can you please fix it? Uh, and put it like raising issues and stuff, which also let us know that people were using them. That was great.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> good to, it's to know you have <laughs> <laughs> no, no news. Sometimes <laughs> it's good news. Sometimes it just means you got no users.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we were wondering there for a while because it's um, like obviously you can measure the API calls, yeah. but you can't measure the SDK usability easily. Like, yeah, it was um, but I mean that answered the question because there were people using it,
0: Yeah, which is <laughs> fabulous. Well, okay, so talk. Let's let's, let's talk about this. Um, you know, forty SDKs, multiple teams feeding in their own APIs to a top level API layer. Uh, I mean, were you using some sort of management system? Was this all going through Amazon API Gateway or were you using Kong or something like that? Like, how do you manage an API of like that size? Do you have to use uh, system software to run it? Back,
1: back then, uh, they were, the team was using, um, oh, what was it? Apogee. They were using Apogee. That's right. Um, I don't know what they use now. That was, uh, was 2018. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what they're using now, but um, yeah, they were using Apogee at the time.
0: What was that experience like? Well, like, What, is, did, what did Apogee do for you? Did you use it?
1: Uh, I wasn't directly using it hands-on. I was like busy out doing the DevRel thing. So I was more mm. than happy to leave the team with that one. Um, but obviously I worked pretty close with them for upcoming releases and stuff. Um, one thing I did, I mean, that was, um, I'm going to say challenging, but I mean, that makes it half the fun, right? But, um, was when new specs would come down, uh, obviously as I pushed out SDKs and sort of used, um, use the APIs and, you know, uh, tested everything through that, those activities, one thing I did, uh, then I have to work with a variety of different product owners on was, uh, changes to the spec. Cause there'd be things that I'd need, I would need, either need change to support the SDK or that were like, just like, shouldn't be there. <laughs> so I was like, no, no, no. You know, here's some suggested changes, and then you send it back, and then they test it and send it back, and they'd be a little bit of backwards and forwards. But um, yeah, they were generally like really open to um, to changes, particularly if it was, you know, that there was flow one downstream of in the workflow that could help, um, you know, make things smoother and more streamlined.
0: Moving on to a slightly different topic. Um... One thing I've noticed, having interviewed quite a few people on on this podcast, is we seem to have. I mean, I'd be curious if if you've seen this this as well. We seem to have two generations now of developer advocates. Uh, when I started doing it ten plus years ago by accident, um, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't even really a recognized thing as such. I mean, you might have had evangelists mm-hmm. and ambassadors, but that was mostly Microsoft and big companies. Uh, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Huge thing that smaller companies did, uh, and a lot of people of that generation, and I, I believe myself and yourself included, sort of fell into it. Um, but there seems to be a newer generation now, a second generation, where it's a defined career choice, and there's an awful lot of mm-hmm. material and guides and role models and all that sort of stuff. Um, yep. Do you think if you were entering, if you were starting work now, you would choose it as a career straight off, uh, and? What's you know? Is, um, is it has it been? Has has the prior experience of not being a developer advocate and having worked in the trenches? Is that necessary?
1: This is a good question because yes, this is something I have also noticed over the years. Oh, I feel so old.
0: Oh,
1: no, <laughs> I mean, experienced. That's the. the well, let's go with it. I feel so experienced. <laughs> um, this is something. I've noticed as well. And, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, um, going back, you know, 2014 ish, it seemed like most people kind of ended up in it by accident. And I was, you know, by all means, I was totally one of those. It was literally someone going, Hey, you, you, you know, you already do stuff with us as an ambassador. Like, why don't you come and, um, why don't you come and do Devra Like, be an evangelist. It's like, cool. That sounds fun. Um, you know, the most daunting thing for me going from, um, so I was a, before becoming going down the advocacy path, I was a full-time tech lead for an agency in um, Sydney. And, um, the, the hardest thing, well, I think not even the hardest, the, the, um, most adaptive part of sort of making that transition was the whole, um, you know, we don't really expect you to be anywhere, but you be where you need to be approach to the role. Because my first week, like I went to the office, you know, day in, day out, like I normally would. And then after the first week, like my manager, who wasn't even in the same like hemisphere, was like, "Hey, you know, you, you don't have to go to the office all the time. And by the way, you've got all this budget. Go to a conference and sponsor some stuff." And I was like, "Uh, okay." And like from there on in, it was which it's literally been a, an amazingly wild, crazy ride. <laughs> Um, for me though, and sort of something I kind of figured out early on is like, this isn't, this isn't a career anymore. Like it was, it was actually really early in, in my DevRel origin story where I kind of worked out that this isn't a career. This is, this is what I do. This is who I am. Um, and sort of, yeah, stepped away from the, I guess, traditional career path a little bit, but yeah, it has been interesting seeing, uh, the last like five, four, five years, particularly with the web 3 um, sort of emergence is you start to now see people like wanting to do it with career um, whether or not um, so I've been a bit conflicted um, just sort of thinking about whether like being a dev being a full-time dev in the seat help or not and I've seen some amazing Devrel folks come through um, you know emerge into the dev world that haven't had that traditional dev background but still um, been really good at what they do and i you know really admire them as industry peers but then coming from like having that experience myself has been really handy because it helps me sort of sit in the same seat if that makes sense uh as as a dev like walk i've walked in their shoes and i still do constantly because i I run my own infrastructure and stuff um so yeah i think having that experience is important but i don't think it's really necessary
0: yeah and I, i think one of the Downsides to our type of journey is uh, the lack the lack of emphasis in the early years on community and community engagement. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, if I compare myself to the second generation, um, uh, I mean to use a cringy term, they're kind of digital natives, but they they, they get community in a way that I still struggle with. Um,
1: yeah, and I think. Yeah, one thing I really liked, um, like I, so 2015, like I've done a lot of traveling and been fortunate enough to meet, um, amazing communities all over, all over the world through conferences and hackathons and meetups, et cetera. Um, one thing I always love is just seeing, um, you know, the, the communities come together in those different locations and just seeing like, uh, Ruby Kagi, for example, which is the Ruby conference in Japan, actually, it just happened recently uh in uh I think about two weeks ago um but seeing like that community come together even after the event and like matt's the uh, creator ruby will turn up at a at one of the after dinners just a random like gathering of people and they'll all everyone will you know start talking code or whatever else they wanted to talk about like it's just a really informal exchange of ideas and just geeking out and Like, for me as a dev, that's always been, like, amazing to see. Um, And it's something I've seen all over the world from Auckland to, um, you know, um, places in North America who, I don't know why I could come up with any names. (laughs) Florida, let's go with Florida. But, yeah, just uh, no matter where it is, you always see these communities, just everyone's just, you know, able to um, geek out and, you know, share, share what they know and learn what they can.
0: It is something that's a little bit special about our industry, and I, I, I speak to friends in different industries, and it, it doesn't seem to be quite the same community vibe. And I, I, I don't know what it is about developers. Maybe we're just so far down the nerd spectrum that <laughs> we can spend hours talking about code. Uh, I, okay, let's 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 finish with one uh, one final question, which um, is: Are you traveling the same now uh, as you did before COVID, or has the travel the level of travel changed permanently?
1: Um, that is a really good question. I'm not traveling. (laughs) I've done one event. Um, uh, yeah, I've done one of one IRL event this year, but otherwise, uh, I'm all set up for streaming and video recording and, um, blogging now. Um, I think the thing, um, I think the thing that everyone kind of realized with the onset of, you know, um, the changing times of the pandemic and my uh, my last international flight was uh february of 2020 uh where i got to work with the united nations when i was with ibm on um, the call for code program which um actually i think is kicked off again so if anyone's interested in that totally check it out but um yeah and since then everything kind of went online and i know some events have said you know everything's opened up again obviously and some events have started go online i uh, go irl again um, but yeah, not, not traveling as much these days, um, which I'm okay with. So 2015, I did the bulk of my travel, uh, traveled sort of up to the, that uh, 2020 when the world kind of changed a little bit, but, um, my record, and I'm really keen to not, not to beat it was, um, 2015, I did 310 days on the road, oh, which, my. um, yeah. Which hurts. <laughs> I got a bunch of frequent flyer points, but didn't want to fly anywhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the way it goes. And you have, you have kept every single conference badge, have I have.
1: I have. Yeah. And each one, you know, each one I still look at now and I still have like fond memories of like, we went and did this. Like we, I spoke about that. Like, it's, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I actually did my, I, I don't know what my current conference talk count is, but 2016, I did my hundredth conf- conference talk in New Zealand um, at API days, New Zealand. Um, when I was with, uh, funnily enough, when I was with Zero, um, but I haven't, I haven't kept track beyond hitting a hundred. So, um,
0: yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's gotta be a pretty big spreadsheet of all your talks that you've ever given. Amazing.
1: Uh, no, uh, actually I have a question for you. <laughs> I, this is my favorite question to ask just as we wrap up um this is my favorite question i always always ask just because from a geek um uh, well developer geek at heart um it i just always love hearing the answer is but um what was your first computer
0: oh a spectrum uh zx 48k oh, no. and nice. it's literally about three feet away from me as we speak
1: Oh, <gasps> you've still got it! Oh, that is am- wait, and cool. <laughs> yeah. and it still wo- and it still works.
0: You know, yeah. I haven't plugged it in uh, into anything in a while because it it, it has a. a <laughs> you have to put it into an old TV that can take like RF axial cables. Okay, ah. um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, it yeah. should still work. I mean, yeah. why, why would why wouldn't it? Twelve oh. well, DC. That's yeah. so cool. You um, oh, I wish
1: I kept mine now.
0: <laughs> but I, I and, and the interesting thing about that is the person who taught me. It took me to the next level. So I was just doing rinky-dinky stuff with BASIC. And I hadn't developed any proper mental models. And I really wanted to do to animate sprites, right, to make little games. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. Now, I I was eight years old or something. I couldn't figure out how how to do it. But my aunt was a coder, Mm Cobalt, right, mainframes. Um, And she showed me how to do it.
1: That's so cool. Um, incidentally, my first computer was an Atari 800XL, where I learned, um, I also learned BASIC on as well. So, oh, good times.
0: Yes, yeah. Well, mine had squishy keys, though. <laughs> uh, I whittled squishy uh, key. the squishy keys. Oh,
1: the little bubble uh, keyboard? Yes, and, and actually, piece. I can remember
0: yeah. the way it worked was um, you had all these kind of key chords, so instead of typing in the words, the basic keywords, you, you could have these shortcuts where you would you'd press like the I don't know, it was a control key or something, and then you wouldn't have to type the word print.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I'm an Emacs user. Now I now I know. I've suddenly realized <laughs> I was yeah. I have a slow keycording thing hotwired into my brain from being a kid. <laughs> that explains.
1: It. Um, you know something I realized recently? Recently, um, when I, I actually went, like I, I tried to go back and do basic things, and one thing I, I learned, um, sort of from that, was in, like in, in hindsight, is there's, there's no libraries. Like you have to build everything yourself and then call it all. Whereas now we have all these libraries that we can just like pull into anything we need. It's so much easier. Like open source for the win.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, and that is that. That's the fundamental difference. That is that is a. a... That is a really big way that things have changed. Um for Steve, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and really wonderful. Thank you for joining us from all the way on the other side of the planet. It's been great to have you. Um, amazing. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com newsletter or follow our Twitter at VoxGig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.